Has anyone here ever been a victim of identity theft? I remember the first time I got a call from a detective. I didn't even realize that my credit card number had been stolen. It seems as though there was somebody in the St. Louis airport, because that's the only time I'd been through St. Louis, that had worked in a vendor perhaps, and um, it had been UPS who had alerted the authorities to the many packages coming to the same address with many different names. And uh, you know the story about having to get a new card and all of those things. Today, there are many people who experience identity theft, but perhaps one of the most, the most uh, impersonated of all time was the Messiah. Do you ever think about that? Many, many people claim to be the Messiah. In Jesus' time, there had already been quite a few people who claimed to be the Messiah. Many after would also claim to be the Messiah. I remember I was walking in New York City, Manhattan, some years ago, walking down the street, and there was a gentleman there giving out brochures. Um, I didn't realize that he was only giving them to Jews. I suppose it was the Jewish version, maybe, of the shut-door theory, if you know Adventist history. Only Jews were worthy of this information that he was sharing. And so, as he was handing these brochures out, for some reason, I must have looked like a Jew. Because he, he gave me one. And I'm walking down the sidewalk with this brochure, and it's got pictures and information about this certain rabbi in Los Angeles who was believed to be the Messiah. And I was, um, I was quite curious, I was quite interested, so I went back to talk to him, and as soon as I asked my first question, he realized the obvious, that I wasn't a Jew, in fact, and he tried to get the brochure back. Um, he didn't want to talk to me about it. Many people have claimed to be the Messiah. In fact, it is thought by some scholars that Barabbas himself, I think we've talked about that here before, the name Barabbas, the the son of the father, doesn't really make much sense. And it's thought by many scholars that Barabbas himself was someone who was claiming to be the Messiah. And the Jews made a decision between this, this Barabbas and Jesus. And so, today we are going to take a moment to look at the evidence for Jesus as the Messiah. Our scripture today tells us that when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, that He might redeem those who were under the law, and that we might receive the adoption of sons. Becoming sons and daughters of, of Christ, of God, evidently is dependent upon Jesus' incarnation and Jesus' divinity, Jesus coming as the Scriptures had said. Today we're going to look at Jesus as the promised seed. Let's bow our heads as we begin. Father, And we just thank You that You've given us evidence that we can turn to, evidence to believe that You have already sent the Messiah, the sent of God, that You have already sent one to redeem us and to adopt us, and that we might be transformed by His power. Today, Father, I want to pray that You would bless us as we open Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We, we turn all the way back to the beginning of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 
3 and verse 15. We call this, in a theological term, we call it the proto-evangelium. This simply means the first gospel presentation. The, the, the promise here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 is given, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, notice this can get a little confusing with the pronouns, unless you remember that Jesus, or God, was here speaking to the serpent, right? And he's speaking to the serpent, probably one of the few promises that God ever gave to Lucifer after his fall, after he became Satan. Here, God gives Satan a promise. And the promise is that his head's going to be crushed. You don't, you don't want to get that kind of a promise from God, do you? But this is a promise that God gives to, to Lucifer. He says, I will put enmity or a hatred, uh, I will put strife between you, the serpent, and the woman. That's Eve, who he attempted to fall, to sin. I will put this enmity between you two and between your seed and her seed. Now, we might think that seed is talking about plural, all the descendants of the woman and all well, the descendants of Lucifer, in, in, in essence, Lucifer doesn't have any children, but he has those who follow in his ways, who are his spiritual descendants, right? Remember that from our series on Abraham? How the works of your father you will do? So Satan has his own children, and there's enmity. Listen, friends, make no mistake about it. There is an enmity between the children of God and the children of the world. There should be. God, God says, I put it there. If the church becomes too friendly with the world, it's usually going to end up no longer being the children of God. That's the problem. The problem is that that, uh, that that enmity, that difference, that peculiarity, those even those visible reminders that we are different from the world around us are given to us by God for our protection. He says, I'll put enmity between your seed and her seed. But notice it's not just plural seed. It's talking also about, a, about the singular seed. As the, uh, the word seed can be both singular and plural. And between your seed and her seed, he, in the, in the, in the singular, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the woman. That's the promise. It's given all the way back there in Genesis chapter 3, the very first day that sin entered the human experience, the promise of the seed also came. Now, I can imagine Adam and Eve's life has been absolutely turned upside down. I can only imagine if any of you have ever done something that you regret you know a little bit what Adam and Eve felt like as they watched their perfect world transformed into a horror film. They saw death and dying around them. They saw pain and suffering. They experienced for the first time anger and, and envy and, and pride and, and jealousy. They had their first marital dispute on the very same day that Jesus, God found them hiding in the trees of the garden. Imagine the transformation from perfect Eden of bliss, where everything was only love and happiness, to now a chill that permeated the air. Adam and Eve could only hope that this promise would be fulfilled post-haste, that this promise would be fulfilled in a very short order, rapidly. They must have wished that very soon that seed would come. I mean, after all, it was promised, the seed of the woman, and he shall bruise the head of the serpent. 
And so Adam and Eve must have prayed for and longed for that seed to come. Oh, surely it wouldn't be long. The Bible records in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, Adam knew his wife, Eve's wife, she conceived and bore Cain, and she said, this is the New King James, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Now, most of the translations render this passage in this manner. But the reality is that this passage can be translated in another way that also some scholars believe that um, it should be rendered. Um, some translations say this, say this way. She said, I have given birth to a male child, the Lord, in the International Standard Version. Uh, God's Word translation says, I have gotten the man that the Lord promised. And um, Ellen White in The Desire of Ages, she, in fact, she says that when, when, uh, when Adam and Eve had their first son, they hoped, fondly hoped that this would be the world's redeemer. Can you imagine the disappointment when Cain instead became the world's first murderer and his victim being his own brother? But the fact is that the seed of the woman was promised, was it not? It was promised. It was right there. They heard it with their own ears. And this promise was kept alive generation after generation after generation. Many were able to look forward to the promise of the, of this, uh, of the, uh, of, of the seed coming because they, they remembered the promise that had been given to Adam and Eve, our first parents, the promise of the seed. It was repeated also to Abraham. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He says it again in Genesis 22 and verse 18, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed uh, my voice. And so Abraham was, was a recipient of this promise as well. Eve would have the promise of her seed being the deliverer. Uh, Abraham would have the promise of his seed being the, the, the deliverer. And it was no mystery that so many of the, uh, of the women, the mothers of Israel, were, uh, were anxious to have children because they all hoped, they all hoped that they would be, they would be the progenitor, the mother of the one promised to Eve, to Abraham. Those promises were repeated not only to Abraham, to, but to Isaac and to Jacob. And um, those, those, uh, those promises continue to be repeated. So, so far, we've already seen that the Messiah would be born of a woman. That may seem self-obvious. Of course, in history, we can look back and we know that Jesus was made flesh through an incarnation in the womb. He was born of a virgin birth. But listen, <laughs> That's only, that's only obvious to us because it's how it happened. Listen, that's how it was promised to happen, right? God could have come to this earth to die for us in any way He chose. You understand? There's nothing that said He had to be incarnate, um, except that He wanted to be our example as well. And so exactly as the Bible predicted, Jesus was born of a woman. Our Scripture today points that out. He was born in the lineage of Abraham. We understand that. We're going to look at a number of other uh, prophecies about Jesus today, but I want to just focus. I want to focus on the ones that could not be self-deterministic. And what I'm trying to say by that is uh, there were many people who came claiming to be the Messiah in Jesus' time and after Jesus' time, and I suppose even in our day today. 
vis-a-vis uh, -vis the uh, rabbi from Los Angeles, right? There are many people who would claim, and they are able to look at the prophecies and say the Messiah is supposed to do this and such, and so I will do this and such, right? But does that really make them the fulfillment of those prophecies? Well, not really, because the Messiah also had prophecies given about him that were impossible to have been chosen or self-determined by an individual. For example, it's impossible for someone to choose to be born into the family of Abraham, right? You don't choose what family you're born into. So what we're going to focus on today is just a handful of the prophecies that Jesus had absolutely no control over. And we'll see if, in fact, there's not an, enough evidence, sufficient evidence, to believe that Jesus is the scent, the seed of the woman, the scent of God. So we've seen that he's born of a woman. We've seen that he's born in the lineage of Abraham. That promise was repeated to Isaac and to Jacob and also to Judah himself. In fact, Israel on his deathbed in, in, in Genesis chapter uh, 49 would give this promise to Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of his people. So not only in the family of Abraham and Isaac and in Israel or Jacob, but also to the specific tribe of Judah was Jesus to be born. Now, was this in fact fulfilled? You'll notice on the bottom of the screen here, if you happen to be taking notes, we have, I just put the text where you can see that this passage has uh, clear fulfillment. In Luke verse 33, uh, 3 and verse 33, we see the genealogy of Jesus includes the son of, he, he came in the family of Judah. But in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 14, it says, for it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So Paul says in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 14 that Jesus actually was born in the tribe of Judah. But what about another sign or prophecy that Jesus could have had no control over? He was born in or to be born in Bethlehem. Did any of you choose your place of birth? I suppose there are a few babies that do choose their place of birth, those born in taxis and, and uh, on the way to the hospital. <laughs> um, they might be uh, given that credit. But most of us don't have any choice about where we are born. The Bible predicted that Jesus, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. Very specifically, he says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who uh, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old from everlasting. We see the fulfillment of that in, in Luke chapter 2 and the story of how Jesus uh, went up, uh, Joseph went up to Bethlehem, uh, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and lineage of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the Bible says, the time came for the baby to be born. So Jesus was born as predicted in the little town of Bethlehem. Um, not only was Jesus born in Bethlehem, at some point in his experience, he was going to be in Egypt. Now, this is a rather 
uh, arbitrary prophecy to make, right? It's not like most people in those days just moved around a whole lot. Usually you were born in a spot and you stayed in that spot. And um, there, weren't, there wasn't the, you know, the, the international community, the global community that we have today. And here Jesus is born in a small town in Bethlehem, but the prophecy says that he'll be one, at one point in Egypt. Um, in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of, Jesus, out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son, the prophecy says. So Jesus was going to be in Egypt, but how would Jesus get to Egypt? His father wasn't an Egyptian. His mother wasn't an Egyptian. How would he be in Egypt? Well, you know the story, right? The wise men who came, they they gave their gifts, they worshipped, and um, then they said, we're going to go back and tell Herod because Herod wanted to know, right? He wanted to know so he could worship too. And God revealed to the wise men that this was not the best plan. And they decided they would just skip out on stopping by Herod's place to tell him where Jesus was. And they went back home another way. I don't know. I imagine on the way there, they were following the star, traveling just at night. They had probably looked forward, don't you think, to traveling back during the daytime? But as it turns out, they might have had to travel back at night anyway, right? Because they had to avoid Herod and him asking them where the Jesus child was. And so they, they go back another way, and God reveals through an angel coming to Joseph in a night dream and a vision. God says, Herod is going to come and to try to kill the, the, the boy. And so he told him to flee into Egypt. And, and Joseph, the obedient father that he was, he took his family and they went into Egypt exactly in fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus would be in Egypt and called out of Egypt, he says here in in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. The Messiah would also be um, involved or related to a massacre of children at his birthplace. If we look in the Old Testament prophecies once again, we see this found in, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. When Herod realized, it says in, in Matthew chapter 2, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. And this it says in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 2, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. So here you find that Jeremiah's prophecy was fulfilled exactly as predicted. Now no baby under two years old has the ability to arrange these types of fulfillments. Only God, who knows the future, could foretell what would happen in the life of Jesus. As we continue, the Messiah would be preceded by a forerunner preparing the way for Him. Now, just a little Bible trivia question for you today. Of the two individuals, Jesus and John, um, born from mothers in the same family, um, of the two, who was born first? Who was it? John, right? I believe he's six months older. And um, uh, in fact, we, we find the story of Mary 
being pregnant and going to visit Elizabeth and so forth. So John is born first. Once again, you have evidence. I suppose that if the forerunner had come, it'd be the afterrunner then, wouldn't it? But anyway, um, if for some reason John had been born after Jesus, it could be claimed that Mary arranged the miraculous circumstances and the claims of, of, Jesus, of John's, John's birth and of his uh, father's muteness and being able to speak only after the naming and all of those things. But the reality is this is all before Jesus was even born. And the Bible prophesied that there would be a forerunner preparing the way for Jesus, for the Messiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In Luke chapter 3 and verses 3 through 6, speaking of John the Baptist, it says, he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And now he quotes from Isaiah 40, a voice of one calling, calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. So Jesus had this outside of his control as evidence as well that he was the sent, the Messiah. Not only was Jesus born in the right place with the right family, a forerunner as predicted, but it says that Jesus would be betrayed by his own friend. Now this may not seem too unlikely, it's often those who we know who betray us, right? That's sort of what betrayal means. But when we see all of the details, it becomes very clear that God actually predicted the precise events that took place around the, the betrayal of Jesus. Psalm 41 and verse 9 says, Even mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Luke chapter 22 says this, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? I don't know if Judas at this point had even realized that he was betraying Jesus. You know, sometimes our minds do strange things to us. Perhaps Judas had just thought that he was doing this to help Jesus out. You know, Jesus needed a, a kick in the seat of the pants to get him out of his comfort zone and, and to confront the, the religious leaders. And maybe if he was, he was forced into this standoff, then he, Jesus would identify himself as the, the king of Israel and overthrow the power of the priests and rulers. Perhaps Judas had wrapped his mind around excuses, about, around rationale. He was really the, the helper. But at this point, Jesus gave him no excuse for not knowing exactly what he was doing. He was betraying, just like the prophecy had said he would. He was betraying the Son of Man with a kiss, fulfilled not only would he betray Jesus, but the Bible gave specific details 
about, about how much money Judas would receive for his services. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. It says in Zechariah chapter 11 and verse 12, Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. The prophecy here in Zechariah chapter 11, it meets its fulfillment when we read the story in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 14. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and asked, How, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. Now, let me ask you a question, friends. Do you think that those religious leaders, the priests and the Pharisees, do you think they said, hmm, how much should we give for Jesus? I know the prophecy says we should give 30 pieces. Do you think that's what happened? No, because if they understood the prophecies, they would have known he was the Messiah, right? And they were absolutely convinced that he was not the Messiah. Well, at least they tried to convince themselves that he wasn't the Messiah. I'm sure the conviction of the Holy Spirit was very strong in their minds that he was, in fact, the sent of God, but they didn't like it. And sometimes they do, we do what they did with conviction when we don't like it. We just stifle it and we try to ignore it. And here they're, they're in spite of themselves, those priests and rulers counting out 30 pieces of silver become a part of the confirmation that the one whom they wanted to crucify was the miraculous Messiah, the sent of God. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting how sometimes in seeking to run from the truth, we actually affirm the truth? Do you ever think about that? Sometimes when I see those folks that are saying, you know, there is no God, I think, how can they do that? The Bible, Bible predicted that they would be there saying there is no God. And in spite of themselves, they're proving the Bible to be true, right? Um, that's what the priests and rulers did as they counted out those silver coins and gave them to Judas. From that point on, he attempted to find a time, a convenient time, to deliver Jesus to them. Not only the 30 pieces of silver, that's very specific, but what would end up happening with that 30 piece, those 30 pieces of silver? The, la the next verse says this. It says, The Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Now, Zechariah, when this is happening, he could not have had the slightest clue as to what this symbolism meant. Here he's just told that it's going to be 30 pieces of silver, count it out, throw it into the temple, and it's for the potter. Now, why would you throw it into the temple if it's for the potter? But yet you know the story, don't you? You know the story of how Judas, leaving the, leaving the, um, the, the place of the bargaining of the transaction with the 30 pieces of silver, he must have felt pretty good about himself. Maybe he thought he had done a, a shrewd move. If Jesus was the Messiah, he was going to now be forced to overthrow the, the powers that be. If he wasn't the Messiah, he was going to be exposed as a great imposter, one of those identity thieves claiming to be the Messiah. And either way, Judas was going to come out as the hero of the day. 
until he's watching from a distance the trial of Jesus going on in the, in the, in the, <coughs> in the courtyard, in the house of Ananias, in the courtyard of Pilate. As he's watching what's going on, Judas, even Judas's hardened heart, could not help but recognize that the Jesus who was standing there amongst all these things going on was a godly man, that he was God. And Judas, even at this point, as he realized that Jesus was not going to redeem himself, and at the same time he realized that Jesus was God, those two realizations led him to determine that he was not going to emerge the hero from from this situation. He was going to be the scapegoat. He was going to be the evil ogre for forever, his his name associated with betrayal and and unfaithfulness. So Judas, haggard with the conviction of sin and of the coming judgment that bore upon him, Judas made his way to the forefront of the crowd in front of the high priest. He just had to, he had to make this right. The only way he knew was to try to get out of the deal. So he tries to undo what he has done, and the Bible records that he took those 30 pieces of silver and he threw them in the presence of the high priest. Now this was an awkward situation for the priests who now were exposed as having bought the betrayal of Jesus. And as Judas tried to make things right, he said that basically the priest said, this is your problem, not ours. Those 30 pieces of silver, once in the hand of the betrayer, now we're back in the hands of the priests. And after Jesus, after Judas' death, they used those 30 pieces of silver, ironically, to buy a piece of property that belonged to a potter. How would Zechariah have known? They bought the potter's field, and there Judas found his final resting place. What a story. It's fulfilled in Matthew chapter 27, verses 9 and 10. It says, "Then Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord has commanded me. Can you imagine? Did Jesus have any part in arranging this? Did he ensure they bought that field? No. He was hanging on Calvary's cross. He had, he had the, he, the potter's field. It was, it was somebody who was a potter who had land for sale. And uh, so he, they now buy this property for the burial place of Judas. And so Jesus could not have determined this. This was something that had to have been something that was divine, a divine fulfillment of prophecy. The prophecy also reads that he would be crucified with criminals, probably something that no other imposter has ever tried to fake. Um, they've tried to, to, uh, to steal his identity, but not this aspect of it. Um, Isaiah 53 and verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. In Mark chapter 15, verse 27, it says they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right hand and one 
on his left. Right there, as the prophecy had said, his bones would not be broken. You remember that after the... uh, After the crucifixion, they came and they broke the legs of the two thieves. But they found Jesus already dead, and so they didn't break his legs. They they pierced his side with with a sword or with a spear and demonstrated that he was, in fact, dead, right? But he never broke any of his bones. And this is what the prophecy had said. Psalm 34 and verse 20, he guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And John sees the fulfillment of prophecy here as he says that he tells the story of the spear piercing Jesus' side and, and telling the testimony that he was dead already. Verse 36 says, these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. John chapter 13 Uh, Chapter 19 and verse 36, John tells us that this is a fulfillment of this prophecy in Psalm 24. He also would be buried with the rich, another thing that he had no determination over. He couldn't choose his final grave. He was hanging on a cross when he said, it is finished. And yet you'll know how how, uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and, and Nicodemus, they went to Pilate and they asked for the privilege of taking the body of Jesus. Jesus would not be thrown off the cliff, off into a, a, a common grave uh, like other criminals. They wanted Jesus to be buried a decent man's burial. And so Joseph of Arimathea had a tomb that had never been used. This was not something a poor man or even a man of ordinary means could afford. This was something carved out of the side of, of a hillside, perhaps, and it was something that was no doubt ornate, and it was a final resting place he'd prepared for himself. But Jesus would rest there because the prophecy had said that he would be buried with the rich. Matthew 20, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 53, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Matthew 25, Matthew 27, I'm sorry, verse 57, it says, as the evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. Now, already, friends, already I believe we can see that the prophecies of Jesus are such that no one can fake these prophecies, right? No one can just decide they're going to have them fulfilled for themselves. Jesus could not have determined any of these fulfillments. In fact, they had to have been a true fulfillment of prophecy. No imposter can fake these kind of fulfillments. But so far we've concluded, I think, with enough evidence to believe that Jesus is not an imposter, that Jesus is not an identity thief, that He was who He claimed to be. He was the scent of God. He was the seed of the woman. He was the Messiah. He was the Word of God. God made flesh incarnate in human body. I think there's evidence to believe that, but there's more still to come. And this is the best part in my view. The best part is that Jesus would not stay in that rich man's tomb, that Jesus would be raised from the dead. Now, nobody, nobody, even if somehow they chose who they were born to and how they were born and where they were born and all of the other circumstances of their birth and life and death, nobody could possibly choose except God to raise someone from the dead. 
No one. The Bible says that the tomb would not hold him. It would not contain him. The, the, the promise is given in Psalm chapter 16 and verse 10, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Now, let's just stop there for a second. And Sheol is the Hebrew word. Now, when the King James translators came to that verse, they thought they knew what it meant because they had a belief that had come into the church through many centuries, the belief that when you die, you go straight to heaven or hell. Okay, And so when they read this word, they said, you will not leave my soul in Sheol. They thought, well, Jesus, how is his, whole, his soul in hell anyway, right? Um, and so they, they came up with some, some thinking from, from the writings of Peter, in other words. New King James translators have, have said, look, that word Sheol, it really doesn't mean hell. It simply means the grave. That's what it means. But the New King James translators also had a problem with that because they don't believe that when you die, you stay in the grave. They believe you go. And so they decided finally, they said, okay, we can't agree on this, so we'll just transliterate the Hebrew word and leave it in the Bible the way it says it in Hebrew. Hebrews. Hebrew. <laughs> and that way, readers can determine for themselves what Sheol means. When the Bible says here, you will not leave my soul in Sheol, it's simply saying, Jesus is not going to stay in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. That grave is going to be broken open. That grave is going to be um, only used for a few days. That gift of the Joseph of Arimathea, generous as it was, it was only a short-term gift because Jesus didn't need a long-term grave. He says, uh, you will not even allow your Holy One to see corruption. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 2 says that there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, verse 5, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Now go and quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Now it wasn't just, it wasn't just Matthew who made up this story and put it in his gospel. In fact, the Bible is very clear that many, many others saw the empty tomb as well. If you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want you to look with me. Uh, I want you to look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll just look at a couple of verses here, and we're going to see this is Paul's great treatise on, his, on, on why we have hope as Christians. And the evidence of our hope as Christians is that there is an empty tomb, that Jesus is alive and not dead, just as was promised. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he says... He says, uh, well, let's just read the first verse for reference. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast to that word which I preach unto you, unless you believed in vain. And he says, first of all, verse 3, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures as a fulfillment of prophecy, that's what he's saying, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, a fulfillment of prophecy, and that he was seen by 
Peter, Cephas, some translations say, then by the twelve. So Peter saw them. The woman saw the angel. Peter saw Jesus. Uh, Of course, Mary saw Jesus. The twelve all saw Jesus. After that, Paul says, uh, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, look, if you want to have evidence to believe in the gospel, if you want to have evidence for hope, first of all, notice that Jesus was born according to the scriptures, a fulfillment of prophecy. He couldn't have faked it. Jesus died according to the scriptures, a fulfillment of prophecy. He couldn't have faked it. But then he rose again and has been seen, not just by Peter and by the twelve, but by 500 people all the same time. And most of them, he says, are still alive today. Now, we are talking here about a historical claim that is of great significance. And it's, it's, it's fascinating for me to note that if the believers, if the, if, if, the, if the doubters, I should say, if the doubters, if the skeptics, if the critics of Jesus had wanted to say Jesus is not alive, there should be some evidence of efforts made in that time period. We have lots of writings from that time period. There should be some evidence of critics, agnostics, skeptics, atheists, whoever they were, the pagans, the Jewish leaders. Somebody should have said, this is a made-up story. But you know what? They couldn't. Because there were so many people alive who had seen that empty tomb and had seen Jesus for themselves. 500 people. He says, most of them are still alive. Notice what he goes on. And he says, he says in verse, uh, verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then our faith, faith, our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, we are found found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. If in fact the dead do not rise. Um, And he goes on, he says, if there's no hope, if Christ is not risen, there's no hope. Verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and have become the first fruits of men who sleep. And um, by the way, by the way, Paul makes the argument in this chapter also. We skipped over it. Not only did Jesus appear to, the fi- to Peter and to the twelve and the five hundred, last of all, he says, Jesus appeared to me. I met him. I met him on the road to Damascus. You know, friends, when I think of all the prophecies of Jesus, when I think of the time of year when many people think about the birth of Jesus, I can't help but turn my heart to the, my eyes to the facts that really matter. And that is that Jesus is alive. I know he's alive. Not just because of these prophecies that were fulfilled, but Paul makes that argument. Paul makes the argument. He says, Jesus', Jesus birth fulfilled the prophecies. Jesus' death fulfilled the prophecies. Jesus rose again in fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus was seen by the, by the twelve and even by the five hundred. But last of all, Jesus was seen by me. You know, one of the most convincing arguments that you can give to those who don't believe of why you believe that there is a God, that Jesus is alive, is the simple argument that you've met Him yourself.
When Jesus has touched your life, when Jesus has changed your heart, when Jesus has helped you overcome your habits, when Jesus has helped to mend your broken relationships and struggling experiences and your families, and when you have met Jesus yourself, it is the most compelling argument for you and for others that we serve a living God. Oh, I'm so thankful for Jesus. I'm so thankful that He showed us evidence to believe that He's not an imposter. He's not an identity thief. He is the real deal. He is the scent of God, the seed of the woman. He is the promise. He's the resurrection and the life. And I'm thankful that if we can see these promises being fulfilled and if we can know Him for ourselves personally, then there is an even greater promise we'll be excited and confident in. And that is that the story isn't finished yet. Jesus is coming again. He's coming again soon. He's coming for those who are waiting for Him. Are you thankful today for Jesus? Father in heaven, today we just thank you that you've given us enough evidence, ample evidence to believe. These these prophecies that could not possibly have been fulfilled by the self-will, self-determination of Jesus. Identify for us, at least intellectually, academically, that He is the scent of God. But Lord, that academic knowledge is not sufficient to save us. We need a personal introduction, a personal relationship with the seed of the woman, the one who came to redeem those who are made under the law, born into a world of sin, that we might become the children of God. Lord, today I pray that during this season when people's hearts are naturally softened, when people's hearts are thinking about Jesus, even if it's not in the way we wish they would sometimes, that we might not miss any opportunity to share the Jesus that is very real to us, that we might have Him living and abiding in our hearts by faith, that we might be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I know this gospel which I've preached to you is true, not just because others have seen Jesus, but I've seen Him myself. Lord, I just pray that we might be able to have that testimony in ourselves that is the promise is also given, the prophecy is also given that Jesus is coming again, that we might be able to believe and hope and trust in that promise as well. May you come quickly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.